Well, good morning. It is so good to see you. My name is Aubrey. I am uh, one of the pastors here at the Church of the Incarnation. If you have a Bible, please find the gospel passage that Sam just read to us, Matthew chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, there's a table of contents. Go ahead and use that. It takes a while to get used to where everything is in it. But it's good to keep trying. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Now, this is part of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to notice that Jesus is telling the church that we, the church, are the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. And then he goes on to command us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, if you keep reading the Bible like a novel, which is the way you should, left to right, not not like an encyclopedia jumping around, but if you keep reading it, When you get to the last pages of the Bible, this passage that um, Caitlin read to us from Revelation chapter 21, here is Jesus again talking about the same thing. Here is Jesus closing the Bible with a vision once again of the church, and it's the same vision. It's the church as a city on a hill. Only this time, the church is much bigger. Much, much bigger. This time, the church is not only a shining city on a hill, it is mind-bogglingly huge. 1,500 miles cubed. That, that is so massive that it would cover over half of the land area of the United States. And it would be as high as 260 Mount Everest stacked on top of each other. So he starts his ministry by saying, the church is going to be a city on a hill. Okay, okay. He ends the Bible by saying, I don't think you quite understand how big this thing is. And every cubic inch of this city that he unveils at the end of the Bible, every cubic inch of it is holy. There's no temple inside of it because the whole thing is a thin place. And it's filled with the presence of Almighty God. And the light of Christ shines so brightly within it that the sun and the moon are no longer necessary and they go unnoticed. And the leaders of the nations are drawn to this holy city where the gates remain open 24-7 and the river of life is always flowing and the leaves of the tree of life are always healing whoever comes into it. Jesus says, that's the church. Now here's the catch. This is not a vision of the church as it will be. This passage in Revelation is not about the future. This passage is about the church now. There are still people outside of the church. This is not the new heavens and the new earth. This is Jesus unveiling what the church is now. 
Now, the earlier part of Revelation 21 is about the new heavens and new earth where he wipes every tear from every eye. But here, there are still outsiders. There are still kings out there. There are still nations that need to be healed. There are still people coming to the city of God for healing. And here is the church. This is us now. We are a shining city on a hill with gates open wide, pledging our allegiance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and inviting others to come in and find healing in Jesus Christ. Now, that's pretty cool. But how exactly do we do this, act like this, live like this? How can we behave and carry ourselves and react right now to the bewildering situation our country and our world is in, how can we react right now to the stress and the fatigue of all the events that are going on at this particular moment in our society? How can we act like a city on a hill? How can we actually shine and be like this? What does it look like practically for our church, for you and for me, to be a shining city on a hill in the midst of the pain and the frustration that this world is going through right now. Well, the good news is that pandemics and economic catastrophe and racial injustice and stressful multiple competing agendas for how to change culture, the good news is that the church has lived through this before. It's new to us, but it's not new to God's people. And the Bible gives us the perspective and the reactions of God's people, God's holy city, the church, in the midst of times like we're living through, in the midst of pandemics and political intense hatred and systemic racism and economic troubles. So the title of the series of sermons that we started last week is City on a Hill. And the subtitle is Following Jesus in Bewildering Times. And today we're going to turn our attention to the very heart of the Bible, the taproot of the Bible, the great prayer book and hymn book of God's people for 3,000 years, the book we call Psalms. This massive book, the biggest book in the Bible, this book that sits literally in the middle of the Bible. And metaphorically, it's in the middle of the Bible. This book, it is a, a book of the actual prayers and the actual worship songs that have been the lifeblood of God's people from the earliest days. The Psalms are the songs and the prayers that Jesus and his followers learned when they were little and became the soundtrack of their lives. These are the prayers and the songs that the earliest church learned and prayed and became the soundscape of its lives. This, this book, the Psalms, it formed Jesus' view of the world. Jesus viewed the world through the Psalms. It, it, it was his worldview. It's from the Psalms that Jesus learned how to interpret the events that he lived through. It's how he learned the right reactions to the events that he lived through. 
Jesus himself believed and thought and reacted from a psalm-shaped view of the world. So if you have your Bible, turn to our psalm this morning, the first psalm, psalm number one. Now, we read this together just a few minutes ago. Blessed is the man who does not stand in um, the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. His delights in the law of the Lord. We read this beautiful psalm, this beautiful, hopeful, comforting vision of, get this, the way life is supposed to be. The first song of the songbook of the church, the first prayer of the prayer book of the church is God's people celebrating life the way it's supposed to be. People flourishing like a tree planted by water, and it's beautiful, and there's justice, real justice. There's a restorative justice happening for this tired, broken, angry world. Now, the picture we get in Psalm 1 of life, of our world, of the entire creation filled with beauty and truth and justice, filled with shalom, This picture of life the way it's supposed to be comes up over and over and over in the Psalms, in the prayer book of the church. One of my favorite examples of this is is the 37th Psalm, Psalm number 37, verse 25. I've been young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Does anybody have this memorized? Or their children begging for bread. Now, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that the way you want it? Don't you want to live for God and your children flourish? Isn't this what you want? Isn't this the way it is supposed to be? And sometimes in life we get to say that. And sometimes in life it's true. But it is not true in my life right now. And it is not true for many people in our world right now. There are so many people right now for whom Psalm 1 and Psalm 37 are the way things are supposed to be, but they are not the way things are. Seven or eight months into a pandemic, and we are being forced by a broken creation to meet different than we want to meet, to work differently, to give birth differently, to die differently, not to mention we have to educate differently and play differently and shop differently and eat differently and worship differently. Life under the conditions of a global pandemic stinks. My own mother died alone. We told her goodbye, and a month later, we never got to see her in that time. She dies. And this is where the Psalms are so helpful. You see, we've got on the one hand Psalm 1 and Psalm 37 and a bunch of others like it, where we are filled and pumped up with a vision of life that is true and good and beautiful. But on the other hand, we've got another set of Psalms. Psalms like number 73. Listen to how it begins. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For I was envious of the arrogant and the prosperity of the wicked. 
Now, here's a psalm that stands right up against Psalm 1 and says, you know who's flourishing? You know who's the tree planted by the water? It's not the righteous. And in this prayer, this person who's praying, he knows the vision that begins the psalm. He knows the default key of the songs of God's people. But that's not what he lives through. What he lives through is life that is not fair. Where children don't get the good things they deserve. In this prayer, life stinks. The wicked are flourishing, and those who love God, those who walk in his ways and delight in his will, they are being crushed. And this theme also runs right through the prayers of God's people. Psalm 44. Listen to some of the verses in Psalm 44. It begins, verse 4, You are my king, O God. I do not trust in my bow, nor can my sword save me, but you, O God, have saved us from our foes. And verse 8, In God we have boasted continually, and we give thanks to your name forever. He delights in the ways of God. He walks in his ways. He trusts in him. And listen to the very next verse. But you, God, have rejected us. You have disgraced us. We've kept our end of the bargain. You have not kept your end of the bargain. This kind of prayer, this kind of psalm, it runs through the whole hymn book of God's people. Psalm 89 is another Remarkable example of this. But the darkest and the most harrowing psalm of all is Psalm 88. Listen to this, verse 3. My soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to shale. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. And then verse 14. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Wretched and close to death from my youth up, I suffer terrors. I am desperate. And then you know how it ends? It ends this way. You, God, have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Darkness is my only companion, period. Amen. End of prayer. Darkness is my only companion. I've upheld my end. You have not held your end. God seems to go, have gone back on his word, to have abandoned his promises and his people. Now remember, the psalms are the prayers and the worship songs prayed and sung by the people of God when they gathered in worship and in their own times of private prayer. And these particular psalms are called the psalms of lament. They are what God's people prayed and sang 3,000 years ago when their society was going through a pandemic. Economic collapse. Political chaos. And it's the actual words. These are the actual prayers that Jesus prayed and that his first followers prayed 2,000 years ago when they were living through 
Seasons of systemic racism and multiple confusing agendas for cultural change, not to mention famine and plague. So the Psalms of Lament, Psalms like Psalm number 73 and 44 and 89 and 88, along with many others, these Psalms, this is what praying looks like in this kind of moment. But they're just the foothills. There's a much larger, darker, mysterious mountain in Scripture than the Psalms of Lament. That's the book of Job. Now, if Job teaches us anything, this is, again, Caitlin read Job's prayers to us earlier. If Job teaches us anything, it teaches us that he learned how to pray from the Psalms. And it teaches us that there are times in life where we go through suffering that is not our fault. Suffering that is not explainable. When God seems to have gone back on his word. To have abandoned his promises. And he seems to have abandoned us. There are times in life where we are in the dark. A painful, lonely darkness. And the book of Job rattles the cages of those who believe that if you are suffering, you must deserve it. Or you must be able to just rise up and trust in the sovereignty of God to get through. No, in the book of Job, we learn that there are more things in heaven and earth. There are more pains and puzzles in heaven and earth than dreamed of by our scientists or our philosophers. And in the book of Job, we learn that even when things work out, it can't make up for the suffering. After all, the book of Job starts, as we saw last week, with Job with his own children dying. And sure, it ends with Job getting more sons and daughters, but who in this room would that be a satisfactory compensation? Now, how does Job pray in the midst of the nightmare he lived through? Well, we heard it. Job 24. It sounds like the Psalms of Lament. There was Job crying out for relief and justice and for things to be put right. My point is, and this is, this is what my entire sermon this morning has been building towards. This is the main point of the message this morning. To be a, the city of God in this dark moment, in these bewildering times, when we are caught up in awful circumstances, when we experience real injustice, when we are living through a terrible plague, or when we are falsely accused of wicked things, when we suffer strange sickness with no apparent reason, let alone any cure. In these kinds of situations, the city of God, its first response is lament. That's where the city of God starts. That's where the church starts. That's where we must start. We must go to lament before we go to politics. We must start with lament. We must complain to God and make the case to God. To be a church, a shining city on a hill, in these bewildering times, our perspective must be grief and our reaction must be lament. As, both as individuals and as a church. This is the way God's city, the church, has responded to these kinds of moments for millennia. 
This is a Bible-shaped reaction to our current moment. And we'll see in the weeks to come that this is where Jesus started when he faced these kinds of moments. This is where the early church started when he experienced these kinds of moments. And this psalm-shaped response of complaining to God and making the case to God, this is exactly where Job started. He did not start with some platitude about the sovereignty of God. He did not start with with an atheistic move into God must not exist. Both of those are cop-outs. Where he started was complaining to God. And get this, at the end of Job, in Job chapter 42, verse 8, God himself declares that by doing this, by lamenting and complaining and making the case to God, God himself says, Job spoke the truth about me. In complaining to God, Job was faithfully describing God. Okay, so let me then talk for just a moment about what exactly is a lament. If this is supposed to be our first response, what exactly does a biblical lament look like? Well, in the Psalms, when a person prays or sings a lament, they're complaining And in their complaint, they do four things. This is what makes a full-throated, Bible-shaped lament. Number one, it is to insist that what is going on is not right. Number two, it is to insist that it doesn't have to be this way. Not only is it not right, you refuse to say, well, the world is broken. I guess that's how it is. No! You don't go there. Instead, you say, not only is it not right, it doesn't have to be like this, and it can change. Just because the world is broken, that doesn't let God off the hook. It doesn't make the pain go away. There is no excuse for the way things are right now. The particular things going on in the particular situation that the lament is focused on, they don't have to be like that, and they can be different. Number three, the person who is lamenting insists to God that that you will not accept the current situation. It is intolerable. The dysfunction has reached an unacceptable level. And number four, a fourth characteristic of a full-throated biblical lament is that God is on the hook. He is obligated to change it. And if he doesn't, he's unjust. He is not who he's supposed to be. And it's urgent. Now that's, a, that's a biblical, that's what Job did. And when Job did that, God said, you spoke truth of me. You told the truth about me. So this is four moves that happen over and over in the lament psalms that Job learned, that Jesus learned, that the early church learned, that we've got to learn if we are going to be a shining city on a hill in these bewildering times. Number one, what is going on is wrong. Number two, it doesn't have to be this way. It can change. Number three, we will not accept the current situation. And number four, God is obligated to do something about it. He must change the situation. Lamenting to God is not merely catharsis. It's not merely psychological. It's really believing things can change. And it's up to God to change them. 
Now, sometimes in the Psalms, the lament is addressed to God against a neighbor. Psalm 109 is an example. Human justice failed. The human justice system is not working. And so the psalmist goes to God and says, not right. It's got to change. It needs to change. It can change. And you're on the hook, God, to change it. There are other times in the Psalms where the complaint is not against a neighbor, where it's a complaint addressed to God against God. Psalm 88 is an extreme case. Here, not the justice of the human courts has failed, but the justice of God has failed. Psalm 88 is a relentless prayer that just keeps petitioning the court of Yahweh against its own injustice. So Psalm 109 is a lament over a failed human justice system, and Psalm 88 is a lament over Yahweh being unresponsive. And in both laments, the person who's praying accepts no guilt or responsibility for the brokenness. It holds the other party responsible. It is not a good lament when you default back into, well, I guess I deserve this. There are times in life where total depravity is not relative to the situation. There are moments of suffering in life where you are the real victim. And you don't need to default to, well, I've done these bad things and this, that, or the other. No, what happened is unfair and unjust and not the way it's supposed to be. And it shouldn't be that way. And it needs to change. And it can change. And God himself can change it. And if he doesn't, he's condemned. Now, what about you? Have you lamented? Lament is different than anger fueled by your social media newsfeed. Have you lamented? This is where we must start. This is where the people of God must start. This is where the church must start. Have you slowed down enough? Have you set apart the space and the time to draw in the pain and suffering and to turn with that pain and suffering? To God and to complain to him and to insist to him that what is going on is wrong, that it doesn't have to be this way, that it can change, that we will not accept the current situation. It is intolerable and that God is obligated to do something about it. He must change it. Now, I know that some of you, many of you did this when I was sick. So many of you have come to me and said, Aubrey, I told God if you did not survive, it was wrong. I know that some of you rose up with a real biblical lament over my illness. I'm so thankful because God heard your lament. He saved my life. You see, like Job, a lament is when you cling to the face of God even when your life makes it look like God is not faithful and he's not just, even though your miserable situation denies God faithfulness, lament is clinging to it despite what everything looks like. Have you suffered? If so, it is absolutely critical that you take the time to reflect on what has happened in your life to reflect on it and to turn it into real lament. In these bewildering times, the city of God shines 
when it cries out in lament. We must take the time to reflect on the misery spreading through the world. We start with lament. Lament is how we wait in the dark for God's future. If you haven't, please take one of these psalms, Psalm 73 or 44 or 89 or 88 or some other great passage in Job, Job chapter 21 or chapters 23 to 24. Take them, make them your own prayers of lament. Complain to God. State the case to God. Now, there is plenty more to see in the Bible about how God's people live in these kinds of moments. And we'll get to that. But this is where it starts. And I hope that in the days and weeks ahead, if you haven't been here, you will. Let's pray.